Good morning. All right, so I'm going to give one announcement again because there's twice as many people in the room this time. So uh, Reformation Month, exactly, ReformationMonth.com. Everybody got that? Not Reformation.com, ReformationMonth.com. Not .org, not .net, not .me, not .us, not .gov. ReformationMonth.com. You need to go to ReformationMonth.com and create your account for Reformation Month. Now, if you have no idea what in the world I am talking about, I'm going to give you the very short spiel. You'll get the bigger spiel when Reformation Month begins, which is very soon, and we call that month by its other name is what? October. That was, really good. That was a poorly worded question, wasn't it? Okay. I'm going to have to try again. So I want you to officially change your calendar. January, February, March, April, May, again, September, Reformation Month, November. All right, we're going to change it completely because Reformation Day is the last day of that particular month, and that holiday is called? Reformation Day. Oh, very good. If somebody said Halloween, I was going to stroke out, okay? <laughs> Halloween does happen that day. It happens to coincide with this holiday called Halloween. That's not the one I'm interested in today. I'm interested in Reformation Day, which is traditionally the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So on October 31st, the year was 1517, this German monk who was studying to, I guess, become a doctor in their system, um, posted a discussion, and the way you posted a discussion, we use that same lingo today, we post discussions all the time, we just mean it very differently than they meant it, to post something was to take it and nail it to the bulletin board, which was the church door on the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. So he had a debate he wanted to start. You know, when we watch a movie, it seems so bold. He's nailing something. It's really just posting to the bulletin board. But either way, what was on that piece of paper, the 95 Theses, was an in-house Catholic debate about indulgences. He thought it was going to go quite smooth because some of his points he felt like were so obvious that the practices of the Catholic Church of the day, from even a Catholic perspective, were insane. There's no reason to say some of the things we're saying. So we just wanted to start a friendly debate. The debate did not go friendly. Fast forward a few years, we have a full-blown Protestant Reformation, breaking of the church, but ultimately for our purposes, and the reason we're interested, is there was a return church-wide across Western Christianity to the Scriptures. Uh, the scriptures were translated. For the first time in a millennia, we start to see translations of the scripture into vernacular language. Of course, vernacular is the fancy term for just normal language. Instead of ecclesiastical Latin, which at that day only the super-educated spoke, it's translated into German, French. Of course, for our purposes, English. Okay, I was hoping you would get that one without any more hints. Yes, so English, very big deal for us to be able to read the Bible in our own language. And so we look back at the Reformation and we celebrate the fact that we live in a day and age where we not only have access to God's Word in our own language, but that we have it in every form and format you could possibly fathom. It's on your phone. If you have a smartphone of any kind, you have access for free to the Word of God. You can find a Bible in virtually any hotel room you go to. You open it up, there's a Gideon. You, you go almost anywhere you can find, you have access to the Bible. Chances are you own more than one. Anybody own more than one Bible in their home? 
Anybody own a Bible that hadn't ever been opened? (laughs) You know, maybe. We've got lots of Bibles. We have them everywhere, but we're still in the same possible tension of living in a day and age where nobody read the Bible. We have access. Access doesn't guarantee that we read it. So we like to spend all of October in celebration of Reformation Day, which is the celebration of God's Word. We do it for a whole month, and the way we do it is we read the Bible together as much as we possibly can. So our goal this year was supposed to be 20,000 chapters. If you were here for the first announcement, I redid the math, and if our goal for total readers is 200, then uh, the math needs to actually be 30,000 chapters. So the goal did increase by 50% since yesterday. So I apologize for that, but I'm laying that burden on you, and as your pastor, I'm telling you, you better do it, or we're going to excommunicate you. Not true, but uh, you know, I just want to make you feel like there's a threat involved of some kind, or I'll do the other guilt trip. If you love Jesus, you will do it. Which one works for you? I don't know. Whichever one works, you know, just, yeah, okay. Stick or carry? That's, yeah, that's what we're doing. Stick or, actually, we're just going to put it, make it public, exactly how many chapters you read, everyone will know, and they'll judge you. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Whatever angle I need to take, that's the angle I'm going to use with you, Okay. So read the Bible, read the Bible. If you go to ReformationMonth.com, a little bit more information about the logistics of how we do that, go there, sign up, make an account, and we will start reading October 1st. We will finish reading November 3rd because that's the first Sunday after the end of the month. So you technically have 33 days instead of 31 to read this time. So it should be very easy for us to hit our goal because that's only 1,000 chapters a day. We can totally do that. Somebody's giggling. No, Jack. We can, we can handle this. You know, if, if just 10 of you read 100 chapters a day, we'd be done. You know, so just saying. Yes, kids, everything we did last year still works. Audiobooks, audio Bibles, clarification, still work. You can still do that. If you read to someone else and they hear it, you get to count it. So do they. Right? So we always joked last year if we got to Sunday and it wasn't, we hadn't reached the goal yet. We were going to read Psalm 150 however many times publicly we had to to reach the goal. So I don't know if that's an encouragement or a threat, but that's still on the table. Okay? I'm excited about Reformation Month. Forgive me. When it gets a little closer, I just start to get a little more you know, excited about life in general. And, okay, I'll just be, be honest. Here's what happens, and this isn't a condemnation. It's an observation. As a whole, we just read our Bible more during the month of October. Okay? I think everyone who's been part of our church can recognize, you know, if you were honest, you spend more time in the Word during that month than you do the rest of the year. I can tell. Um, The filling of the church by November, it's a different group of people. And it's because we have humbled ourselves, we've saturated ourselves with the Word of God, and it is living and active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it pierces the division of soul and spirit, and it will do a work on you. And we do that every Reformation month. Ideally, it's what we ought to be doing all year round, but at least let's do it in October. And uh, you should probably start practicing, because if all of a sudden you want to read 50 chapters a day from nothing, you can spend the next couple of weeks practicing. So go ahead and just read it as much as you can now. It's kind of like you're doing that before workout stretching so that you're ready for the workout when it begins. We good? All right, yes. I'm, I am pumped, guys. I'm sorry. I'm calmed down now. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are near the end of the chapter. So about a page and a half left on my um, paper, and we are about to wrap up Paul's um, 
personal letter to the Corinthians. We call it the second letter. It's really the fourth, but it's the second one that we have. And we've had some interesting discussions in 2 Corinthians. And so just a quick recap, and you've heard the recap so many times, I won't give you all the recap, but just to remind ourselves where we are, Paul planted the church, it went well, he left, things went poorly. He wrote a letter because things were going poorly, we call that 1 Corinthians. He disagrees with them and some practices, they had also asked him some questions, he's answering those questions. Um, after that, things get really bad in 1 Corinthians because a group of people that Paul in this verse calls super apostles, um, which is very, very sarcastic, have come into the church and are leading the church in a false gospel direction, and in particular, they're leading the church against the Apostle Paul. So Paul is the enemy, the gospel has been altered, and so Paul writes what is called the severe letter to the church. We don't have the severe letter, we just, he references the letter here, we know it happened, and he wrote the severe letter, he sent it with Titus, the church receives the letter, and surprisingly, the church repents upon reading the letter. So Titus comes back to Paul, who's just been anxious, he's been a bundle of nerves since he sent the letter. He even had fruitful ministry before him and he couldn't do it. He couldn't focus on it because he was worried about this church in Corinth, the Corinthian church. But he receives the word back, Paul, the church repented. They heard the word, they heard your message, they have changed their minds, their attitude towards you is repentance, they have excommunicated the super apostles. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians, which is now the fourth letter, to the church to prepare for his coming. He hadn't seen them since they repented. He just found out that they repented. So he's on his way. He'll be there within a few weeks. When he gets there, we know things go well. He writes Romans while he's there. His most famous letter, the doctrinal letter, it's a beautiful letter. He writes that in that place. So we know he's in a good spot when all the dust settles and he gets there. Things work out. But we're in that gray area right now, context, with 2 Corinthians, where technically he knows they've repented, and so he's coming, but he's sending this preemptive letter to do two things. One, to prep them for that offering. If you remember, we spent three weeks talking about giving. So one of the advantages and maybe disadvantages of studying the Scripture systematically is I don't get to pick the topic necessarily that we're talking about. And I think this morning is similar, maybe not giving, because everybody, you bring up giving, everybody's like, man, not today. Today we're going to talk about false apostles, and that might not seem immediately interesting. Some of you may perk up, but I think it will actually be very fruitful, and it's a timely message for the church. But he's dealing with that offering, and he's also dealing with the, the super apostles. What do you do with these guys, these super apostles? And then last week we spent the whole Sunday talking about apostleship. What does that mean? So quick recap of that. We need that going into this for it to make sense. An apostle, capital A, apostle in the Bible does not exist today. We, we spent a lot of time explaining that, so if you want that, but to go back and re-listen to that message. But the basic idea is those guys did not have to ask God's permission to act. All right, Paul could say, the word of the Lord is. He could say, you unclean spirit, leave. He could say, you're cancer, nope, you're not allowed to be here, go. He had the authority from the creator, from Jesus Christ himself, to make such statements. That was a direct apostolic authority. It did not pass to people when the apostles died. Where did it pass? To the scriptures. It passed to the scriptures. These are the foundation stones upon which the church is built. That is the authority of Christ contained in a document. It's the word of God. So that's where we ended last week. So now 
he's going to move and he's going to make a direct attack against these so-called super apostles. And that's what the first half of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is about. So let's dive in. Let's hear this attack against the super apostles. Start off, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. All right, so that's interesting. What in the world is he setting up? He's going to get to his argument eventually, but you know how the apostle Paul is. He can never go straight to what he's talking about. He'll bring up the topic, and then he's got to hit those four other things that we all have to agree on before he gets to the topic. Y'all familiar with it? We do this in language all the time. Um, I'm one of those, I start to tell a story, and I feel like I have, I'm doing it right now, even explaining this point. I can't really say the point yet, because i got to tell you these other four things. So the Apostle Paul's doing that here. So he's going to move towards, you know, that whole, well, guys, I'm an apostle, you have to do what I say. That's ultimately the, the argument. But he's going to back away, and he's going to use some things that, he, he likes to use this expression, if we're speaking from a human perspective, which is Paul's way of saying, I'm about to show you that even by their metric, I'm better than them. If you've read enough Paul, you know, he's like, guys, I'm not super righteous. I'm the chief of all sinners. But if we were, hypothetically, going to make a scale for personal individual righteousness, I mean, just hypothetically, I would be higher than you. That's how the Apostle Paul operates. You know, I was a Jew, perfect Jew, a zealous. In fact, my conscience was completely clean from A to Z. I obeyed the lessons. This is how the Apostle Paul works. He knows who he is. He knows he needs grace. But he also knows that if you want to play this Pharisee game, I mean, who's the most impressive Pharisee who ever lived? The Apostle Paul saying that jokingly because he knows it's him. All right, this is the Apostle Paul. So let's bear with a little bit of foolishness, if you will, and he's setting this up, and he, he doesn't quite get to the foolishness until what we cover next week, but this is where he begins. So let's bear with a little bit of foolishness. And do bear with me, verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So he's got a metaphor here. It's actually a very interesting, clever metaphor. So in their culture, um, marriage worked a little differently than it does in ours. We have this one true love sort of thing. You know, you find your one, your soulmate. Didn't work like that way, quite like that in their system. Their system was a little bit more dad said who you were going to marry. Right? <laughs> arranged marriage. So he's using that as his background illustration. So there's a dad who's got his daughter, and he's going to present her, and we still do that part at a wedding, right? Usually when you come to a wedding, the, the father walks the bride down the altar, and there's this presentation. And so the, the imagery of the veil and the white is, I'm presenting to you my virgin daughter for you. She's clean. I've protected her. I have done my job. She's, she's pure and holy, set apart, blameless, all of those things. That's the illustration. So Paul's saying, who's the virgin in his illustration? Well, this church at Corinth, that he went, and Corinth is his daughter. And the illustration, that he's protected, he's wanted her to be a virgin, and he was going to present her to her husband at the final day. And, of course, this is symbolic of who's the, who's the husband. This is Christ. I'm going to present you, Christ, the pure virgin to Christ, your husband. Now, the problem is, is his daughter has not been faithful to the husband she's been betrothed to. That's as far as I'm going with that illustration. Just think back to Hosea. If you've read Hosea, you remember our key word in Hosea, right? 
Never mind. You're like, I'm not sure. You know what we're talking about. All right, so this is what he just accused the Corinthian church of being. I wanted to present you as a pure virgin. But um, they're not. They're not a pure virgin. Why? So let's just walk through. That's what he wanted to do. Verse 3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Saying, I'm worried you're going to do what the serpent says. You're going to eat the fruit. I'm, I'm worried that's what's going to happen. Really, I'm worried that's what already happened. I'm worried you did that. He has a divine jealousy. So you know the biblical story we're referencing. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan comes up, questions the law, the commandment of God. Eve is tempted to eat the fruit. Adam by her side. They partake of this fruit and sin enters the world. So this is the story. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, right? back up before we go further, just make sure we're on the same page. So who is the serpent in his little analogy. So if the church is the bride, Jesus is the groom, and then you've got this serpent coming to tempt Eve, who is the serpent that's come in to tempt the church? These, these super apostles. So he is calling them the devil, right? You, you serpent. You, you guys, those super apostles that you let into the church, that was you were being Eve, they were offering fruit, and you were willfully letting them come in because you wanted to eat the fruit they were talking about. This, these are the super apostles. So if anyone, so we're just going to describe these super apostles. For in the sermon, we're calling these false apostles. Here's what they do. They, they come and they proclaim another Jesus, a different one than the one we proclaimed. And if you, they receive a different spirit from the one you received, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So what's his accusation there? These guys come in with a different Jesus? You're like, okay, no big deal. They come in with a different spirit? Ah, I mean, we'll be free with this, whatever. Come in with a different gospel? You know, man, whatever works for you, that's fine. He's accusing his church of being the harlot. You've not been the pure virgin before your groom, you've been betrothed to her, and yet you're following these false false apostles. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Quick word on translations. Depending on the, the, the version of the Bible you have, you get very different renderings of this expression. So my ESV translates it, assuming we're talking about the bad guys in this scenario. If you have another translation, maybe a King James, maybe a, a New King James, I know for sure, does this. They reference this as though it's a reference to the original 12 and say eminent apostles. Does anybody have a translation more like that? Okay, so that's a New King James. So there's a, a decision has been made in the translation work here. Which group is Paul talking about? It's super apostle either way. Is he saying the original 12? He's saying, I'm not less than the original 12. Or he's saying, dude, I'm not less than those guys who are super apostles. I think the ESV is right, and I think it's made the, the effort to show that in the translation, that these is the bad guys he's talking about, which is clear as we go down. But either way, Paul's argument's the same, that he's not less 
than the original 12. Now, why would we want to say the original 12 are better than Paul? What'd they do? They hung out with Jesus for three years. But so did Paul, actually. Paul, he tells us very clearly in, in Revelation, I mean, in, uh, in Galatians, that he spent time with the risen Christ, directly receiving instruction, being taught. He got one-on-one seminary. They got 12-on-one seminary. At best, three-on-one seminary. So Paul's almost saying, he might actually be greater than those guys in terms of what he's been told in the time he's spent with the Lord. In fact, he does write, in terms of number of books, he, he writes more of the New Testament in that regard. So he's saying, that's, that's what I am. So I'm greater than these super apostles. Here's where he's saying that, verse 6. I may be unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Where did he get this knowledge? From Christ directly. This is apostleship. He's got this knowledge directly from Christ. Furthermore, indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So let me just background. Let's think about what the apostle is doing in this scenario. This is the opposite scenario of what he had to deal with in the church in Galatia, but the principles apply the same way. So Paul has had to deal with false apostles repeatedly. If you remember the book of Galatians or if you studied the book of Galatians, it's the same topic, different type of false apostles. It's very good for us because the Bible is giving us two different opposite spectrums here, and it just gives us a good framework to think about any false apostle in our own day. In the Galatian church, here's how the false apostles worked. They kept the gospel, basically. This, you know, Jesus saves, but you also have to do the law in order to be saved. You also have to get circumcised. You also have to observe the Sabbath. You also have to not eat pork. You, you have to add these things to your salvation. So we could say these are more of the legalistic, Pharisee-type false apostles. If you want to earn God's favor, here's the list of things you have to do or God won't like you. That's the type of false, false apostle Paul's dealing with in Galatia. And he uses a very similar thing there. He says, if anybody comes to you with a different gospel, in fact, this exact wording there, even if it's a messenger from heaven, an angel, an angel shows up with a different gospel to let him be accursed. Corinthians, however, has the exact opposite type of false teaching. Instead of, here's your list, you've got to do all these things to be righteous before the Lord or he won't like you. The other side is so much grace. Oh, did you can do whatever. It was covered. Don't worry about it. I mean, Jesus, he covered your sin. You'll be fine. You can go sin. Do all this. Man, live free. You get to be pure in heaven. Live it up while you can. Exact opposite spectrum in Corinth. So what is Paul saying? Both of these are false apostles. Let me give you four marks of a false apostle. You pull out your outline. I give you these. Number one, they appeal to your idols. This is always how it works. They appeal to your idols. And we say idols, so let me... Let me explain it like this. If we define idol as something you put before God, then we're, I mean, that would be true. Anything you put before God is an idol, but that definition leaves out way too much because if I put God first and I put money second, do I have an idolatry problem? Yeah, even though it's not before God, if I worship it at all, it's an idol for me. So you worship and have a tendency to worship something. In fact, the Apostle Paul would argue in Ephesians that your default state 
is you follow the prince of the power of the air, which is a way of saying Satan. And I know you probably didn't wake up in the morning and say, Satan, what is your will for my life? Instead, the way you follow Satan is some form of idolatry. Paul says this, you by default are an idolater. You are worshiping a false idol. And people who are false teachers, false apostles, like to make some baptized way, you can still worship that false idol. Just we'll put Jesus in the mix. So they do. They appeal to your idol. Prosperity gospel does this with money or wealth, relationships, health even. And if Jesus actually wants you to be perfectly healthy. You know, so if you worship Jesus, we can still worship that idol of health at the same time. But again, you read the scriptures and you find that there's nothing in that at all about perfect health and following the Lord. It doesn't work that way. In fact, there seems to be this connection between following the Lord and suffering, following the Lord and persecution, following the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, was emphasizing I can do poverty through Christ who gives me strength. That's the idea here, but false apostles always appeal to your idol. So check yourself. Is that false apostle? Is some new teacher, some new ideology on the scene? And that really sounds good. Why? Is it, is it allowing you to worship your idol and Jesus at the same time? There's a tendency for it to happen like that. The guys in Corinth, what's their background? They're Greek. And when we think of Greek, we think of Greek culture in college. That's about the same as Greek culture in the ancient world. Heavy, heavily sexualized. And these apostles are saying, no, you can do that stuff. That's fine. You, you can love Jesus and still do all of that. They're just welcoming the idols into the system. They preach a different Jesus. So just here's a, here's a metric. If you want to know if something is a cult, I can guarantee you this happens. They change the doctrine of Christ. Here's the basic elements. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus has always been God. He's not a man who became a God. All right, there we go. That's as simple as we could possibly say it. Every false religion and cult alters that in some way. He's not really God, or he's one of many gods, or he wasn't really a man. You look at any false religion, that's what they're going to change. There's some aspect of Jesus that is different. The apostles had to deal with it in the early church. They didn't imagine that God could ever be flesh. They could ever have a, a body and be man. It doesn't make sense for them. You get later in church history, well, he was just a man. He couldn't really be God. And, you know, there's always this tension going on, and whatever the system is, they preach a different Jesus. Number three, they're filled with a different spirit. So idols, Jesus, spirit. They are filled with a different spirit. So the scary thing about the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit. It's just not. There's reference to many evil spirits in the scriptures. In fact, we're told to test the spirits multiple times, assuming that there's there's many, and here's the most fundamental test for whether or not the Spirit you're working with is the Holy Spirit, is does it magnify Christ? Paul's wording is all spiritual gifts say Jesus is Lord. They emphasize Jesus, not even the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't emphasize the Spirit. Jesus himself said of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, he won't say anything of his own accord. He will only say what glorifies my name. We're not called Spiritans. We're called what? Christians. So even in the Christian ecosystem, there's a tendency for the Spirit to take a place the Spirit, by default, does not take. It has been Christ who we follow and obey. There's a different Spirit among false apostles, and the key to it all, the last one, they manipulate the gospel. 
The gospel message is always altered to some degree by a false teacher. The gospel message is very simple. The Bible boils it down to two things. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. This is the basics. Jesus died for our sins. If you take sins off the table, you have messed with the gospel. But notice what was not in that statement. You don't do anything but sin in that whole story. This is the gospel story from the Bible. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Where did you do works in that? You don't. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you sinned. We have rebelled. We have offended. We have wronged. We have committed treason against the creator of the universe, yet he loves us so much that he sacrifices his son to be the propitiation, to be the wrath absorber, to take all of our sin, our certificate of debt, to nail it to the cross, to purchase our freedom, to atone permanently for our sins. We don't do anything. He does all of that. All we do, and I love the way Scott said it, we just lay back and trust. Just trust him to do this work. That's the gospel. And anytime we start adding to that, you just trust Jesus. And you have to do these extra steps. Now you're manipulating the gospel. Or sin's not as bad as we think it is. Jesus has just given us kind of this imagery for how you can, there's a disconnect between you and God, and he's just showing you that, no, you have rebelled. You're a sinner. And, well, you know, that whole resurrection from the dead bit, that's just, I mean, that's, that's just mythology, right? I mean, that's just, that's grandiose. That's metaphorical. Jesus conquered sin in some spiritual sense. No, we mess with that. That's part of the basics of the gospel. You are so broken in sin, you need to be raised from the dead spiritually, and ultimately you will be raised from the dead physically. Both of these are basic elements of the gospel. If any of that is altered, we have a false religion before us. These are just four marks of false apostles. Let's keep going through the text. So Paul's going to make a kind of a, a personal defense here in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin humbling myself so that you might be exalted? So the scenario is when Paul went to Corinth, he did make a change in his plan. He usually, um, he would receive help from the church, just like a minister receives a salary for preaching the gospel. Paul taught this, that it's an appropriate way to do ministry, to, to receive your income from the ministry. That's where he goes into the tithe of the Old Testament, but he didn't do that in Corinth. In Corinth, he was very particular not to ever take any financial assistance of any kind from that church because he wanted to do a good job of preaching the gospel to them for free. It actually kind of backfired, and one of the accusations against him was that he didn't take, he, he did it everywhere else, he didn't do it here, he didn't take your money, and we would think, well, wasn't that a good thing? And the false apostles spin it and make it a bad thing, and Paul's like, what, I rubbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you? Paul's like, how does this make sense? And I, I kind of asked the same question, like, how did they make that argument work? But they did, and many believed it. And when I was with you, and was in need. I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Big fancy way of saying Paul has a clean conscience. He knows he did it right. He's not a false apostle. He's not appealing to their idol. He didn't do that for that sake. He didn't change Jesus. He didn't, wasn't filled with a different spirit. He didn't manipulate the gospel. He came with a plain explanation 
of the truth. He tells us in 1 Corinthians, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. I would embody the suffering of Christ in my method of preaching the gospel to you. All right, let's finish up this paragraph, then we'll make some final application. So what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. That's Paul's you know, wordy way of saying, I'm doing this right. I'm going to keep doing it right. And it's eventually going to prove to you that I'm in a different category than those guys. The long-term fruit of his apostleship proves what he truly is. Now he makes the most um, bold accusation he could possibly make against them in the next few verses. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What's his final accusation against these guys? They're not just wrong. They're actively working for the wrong team. They are messengers of Satan. Yeah, they've disguised themselves as messengers of light. Now that should scare us a little bit. If they're disguised as messengers of light, then what might we be tempted to do? Well, we follow. That's what happened at Corinth. That's why he had so much controversy with them. He's like, guys, you should know better. But they didn't. These guys showed up as messengers of light. They showed up with beautiful faces, with a pretty picture, with a well-orchestrated system. And the guys fell for it. It took a long time. It took years for Paul to work this out in this church. So what I want to leave us with is not in fear, but I want to give you three very practical ways you can guard yourself against the teachings of false apostles. So number one, know your idols. Know your idols. What I mean by that, I said we're, by default we worship idols, but you worshiped specific idols. And you're going to, for the rest of your life, have a tendency to worship those idols. And if you know what they are, you know what to be on guard in your own heart. You know what tempts you. you ever been in a scenario that didn't tempt you at all? You just, that idol does not work for you. You have no desire whatsoever to sin in that way. Then you leave that room, you go into another room, and that is exactly the idol that tempts you. What's the difference between you and those scenarios? <laughs> One of you is like, oh, man, I'm a strong Christian. I never do that. And you walk into the other room, and it's like, is anybody looking? I'm going to do this one. Know what they are. Take enough time. Make a journal, whatever you have to do. List out those idols. Know what idols you're tempted to serve. And then when you hear these false gospels that are trying to get you to worship that idol, whoa, 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 whoa. You're trying to give me the thing I know I worship. Something's probably not right. That's just a good step. Number one, know your idols. Number two, and maybe this should be number one, know the basics of the gospel. You have to actually know what the basics of the gospel are. We have this tendency to, I'll just be frank, we get lazy as Christians. We, we want to be spoon-fed. We don't want to do the work ourselves. We, we may want to learn what the Bible says, but we, want, we don't want to go study 
what the Bible says. And we don't have to be deep here. There's a book um, that you can order. It's a very simple, short read, just as an example of knowing the gospel. It's called Conversion. It's yellow, and it's like 100 pages or less, and it's small. Read that book. That book is an excellent description of the basics of the gospel. Just read the New Testament epistles. Know the basics of the gospel, and you can't be fooled. So, I mean, we could study all the things wrong with all of these false religions, but the easiest thing to do is just to study the truth. Know what the truth is. It's very hard to be tempted by these things that don't work. They don't work with that truth. And number three, practice your discernment. Practice your discernment. The book of Hebrews has that excellent description as it's walking through this argument about discerning. We grow, we train ourselves to be able to discern what is right and wrong. When was the last time you sat down and analyzed whether something was right or wrong? You watch a movie. What's the worldview in this movie? Does this align with biblical teaching? The answer is no, it doesn't. (laughs) In what way? I'm not against watching movies. I think it's an excellent strategy for learning discernment. What's the worldview here? What's it teach? What does this message say? What are these politicians trying to get me to believe? What is this book trying to get me to adopt? How does it want to coerce my thinking to follow its thinking? Pay attention to these things. I want to end with one simple application, one simple take-home that you need to do. I want you to commit to this Reformation Month, learning the Bible in a way that challenges you. We can all read. We can all listen. We can sit down and read chapters of the Bible every day. But I want you, this Reformation Month, as we come together to church, we're going to read the Bible together. I want you to think about a way that you could read the Bible or a degree to which you could read the Bible. Maybe this is a quantity thing. Maybe this is a strategy thing. You've got to work it out on your own terms. I want you to challenge yourself and grow in the Word as we read the Bible together this year. I can guarantee, I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher, but I can make this guarantee that you saturate yourself with God's Word. If you pour in, you humbly submit yourself to it, and you feast on the Word of God, I guarantee that it will not return void. Because it's not me making that guarantee. This is the promise from God Himself. He is going to sow that seed in you, and it is going to grow, and it is going to produce fruit. You can bank on it. This is God's truth. So as we close out this morning, I want to read the Levitical blessing over us. This is God's word given directly to the people of the Old Testament that the priests were to bless them with when they would depart. And here is the wording from the Lord himself. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a great afternoon. See you at the park.